Good evening. Uh, I'm Sanjeev Arora, the chairman of the Public Lectures Committee at, at Princeton University. Tonight's lecture by Mark Jurgensmeyer is sponsored by both the Public Lectures Committee and the Princeton University Press. And uh, most of you probably know that Mark gave two other lectures uh, the last couple of days, and tonight we hope he'll bring those themes together in a lecture titled provocatively, uh, What Does God Have to Do With It? Mark Jurgensmeyer is a Director of Global and International Studies and Professor of Sociology and Religious Studies at the University of Santa Barbara, and he's an expert on religious violence, conflict resolution, South Asian religion and politics, and uh, his uh, book from 2003, Terror in the Mind of God, The Global Rise of Religious Violence, uh, uh, was highly popular. Um, and tonight's lecture, I, I forgot to mention, tonight's lecture is sponsored by the Stafford Little Fund. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a fund that was established in 1899 by, uh, with the help of a donation of a Princeton alum, Stafford Little. And Mark is following in the tradition of a very distinguished line of speakers, including Albert Einstein, Thurgood Marshall, Gunnar Mirdal, and so on. So please welcome Mark Jurgensmeyer. Well, thank you very much. I'd like to uh, congratulate you on your perseverance and persistence, those of you who suffered through one or more of the previous lectures. Uh, and for those of you who did not, I'll give an instant replay, a uh, kind of synopsis to bring you up to date of where we are in this discussion of God and war and the lecture for tonight. What does God have to do with it? Well, <clears throat> Now, the first lecture of, in this series, advanced a theory of why the idea of war is oddly appealing. What I suggested was that war is an alternative reality based on the moral absolutism of social conflict. It's an idea that appears in a time of social discord, and it offers an alternative framework of order in which the imagined source of the problem, the evil enemy, is confronted and ultimately conquered, and peace reigns supreme. In last night's lecture, I described the current war on terrorism, which is also to be called the Global Jihadi War, as an example of such a war, where both of the sides in the conflict, for quite different reasons, found it compelling to think in terms of the world at war, use its starkly dichotomous moral terms to try to understand and give meaning to what otherwise seem to be irreconcilable anomalies in the social world around them. In tonight's lecture, I want to understand what God has to do with it, with what religion has to do with war and with the war world view. I want to probe this dark attraction between religion and violence to try to understand why they seem to compel a friendship with one another, 
try to make sense of the role of warfare in the religious imagination and the place of piety in embracing war. And ultimately, I want to think aloud at the end of tonight's discussion of how one can imagine war without bloodshed, even though ultimately we may never be able to be without the idea of war. To start our thinking tonight, I want to turn to uh, an interesting literary phenomenon, the left-behind novel. Some 65 million of these things have been sold in the last couple years. One of the most astounding and profitable public publication ventures of all time. These books, a series of novelists, was conceived by an American Christian evangelist, Tim LaHaye, as a way of telling the story of the New Testament account of Armageddon, which is set then in a modern milieu. Together with a novelist, Jerry Jenkins, they have completed by this year some 11 of the proposed 14 novels in the series, almost all of which have topped the New York Times list as soon as they were published. Now, these novels are about a fictional account of a group of Christians who were somehow left behind. Well, they were not quite Christian as much as the Christians were. The true Christians were at the moment of rapture, this great moment at the last days when true Christians would be whisked up to heavens and the rest of us would be left behind. But they then, quasi-Christians converted and they managed to endure through all of the tribulations, literally the trials and tribulations that came at the last day, the rise of the Antichrist, the great travail, the great conflict conflagration of civilizations that appears at the end of the world. This is what the stories are about. For those who are really dedicated and interested in the novels, there is a chat room called uh, the Prophecy Club uh, in which they post messages to one another. And on one of these fairly recently, one of the readers despaired. She wrote in the little message that she left on the bulletin board of the chat room. She despaired about the current crisis in the Middle East. She said, I've never had such a bad feeling about a war before, she said. She said her heaviness of heart was due to the ominous portent that the situation in Iraq has for things to come. It was certain, she said, that from what she understood reading the left-behind novels, that we are, in fact, living in the end times and this war with Iraq is the precursor war to Armageddon. She was certain of it. And she concluded with saying that never before have there been so many evil signs as now in history. Now this interesting internet posting by an ardent reader of the Left Behind novels indicates several things of significance to our discussion about religion and war. It shows how potent this image of war is in literature and the popular imagination. It shows how easily imaginary ideas of war are fused with real conflicts. And it also shows how powerful is the role of religion in war. A relationship so common, so seamless, that it is often difficult to tell the two apart. Religious images are filled with warfare. Uh, the great Hindu epics, the Mahabharata and the Ramayana, about which we've spoken, or the wars between the Buddhist and Tamil kings in the Sri Lankan chronicles, or the 
great adventures of Japanese and Chinese warriors, the biblical images of warfare in the books of Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and 1 Samuel, the triumphant wars of the Islamic tradition that go back to the military forces of the prophet. Every religious tradition is full of warfare. The case of Christianity is the last left-behind novels show. It's the last judgment, and it's the book of Revelation that portrays a war of cataclysmic proportions. And the reverse is also true. Just as in all religion there seems to be war, it seems to be that all war, especially a great war, a war of such magnitude that it seems to pose in the balance the very existence of a people in their culture, are wars in which God is enlisted on either side. Now, shortly after the 9-11 attack, one of the films that was smuggled out of Afghanistan, this one was something of a home movie by a, uh, it shows a Saudi um, imam who came to visit uh, Osama, and Osama bin Laden is describing in this Perloin videotape the attack on the World Trade Center. You remember, remember this image where he has his two hands out to show the towers and the planes coming in, and he kind of smiles smugly at the success of that extraordinary and terrible event. And then he's very quick because one might think that he was boasting in this act. He's very quick to deny his own role or the role of even humans in such a venture and praise God and say, thank to God this act uh, was achieved. It was all due to God's graciousness. Now, the interesting thing is the very moment that that video was being shown throughout the United States, there were also Americans out in the street with the God on their bumper stickers, God bless America, uh, along with the flags that flew after 9-11. It was this song more than any others that expressed the sentiment of a, of a deeply wounded and startled American public that their response was not only, as we discussed yesterday, eventually, not the first day, but at least by the second, uh, the image of war as framed by the President of the United States at the time. It was not only the image of war, but it was an image of war in which God was involved. And the fervor of religiosity was fused with the fever of war first in Afghanistan, then in Iraq. At one point in the, the attack on Fallujah, the night before the leader of the 82nd Paratroopers brought his troops together and he said, don't think that we are fighting against a mindless, faceless enemy. We know who the enemy is and he has a name. His name is Satan. The battle of Fallujah was a battle in his mind against evil incarnate an evil that was touched with a religious valence. Warfare, warfare often unites a public with a sense of nationalism and with religious purpose, a sense of fighting for God and country, which the images of war, the images of the flag of national of allegiance and the images of religion are all fused together in one grand image of a great, enduring, moral struggle. Now, you probably think of many things that would come to mind that would explain why 
war needs religion, why religion plays such a useful role, provides itself as such a useful ally to the purposes of those who are waging war. It puts the competition into the absolute terms of religion and clarifies the nature of the struggle. It demonizes the opponents and valorizes the leaders on the other side. It provides a moral justification for the act of killing and reward for its martyrs. And the networks of religious institutions are ready-made recruiting grounds, especially within the jihadi side of the current struggle. And the blessings of the moral authorities give a reason for acting in religion can give away a personalizing political issues so it's not just a matter of fighting for an abstract policy, it's a matter of fighting for truth and one's own self. To be a martyr in a glorious religious war is to undertake a redemptive act, a part of one's own transformative promise of salvation. So in all these ways it's clear why religion is useful for war in thinking about these things, it seemed to me that somehow, as interesting and important as they all were, none of these things really explain the essential character of the relationship between war and religion. Why war seems to need religion, why it seems to, why, why it must have it, why it seems to not be able to be without it doesn't explain why religion is so close to the heart of the notion of warfare and, and how in some ways they are similar templates of the human imagination. So that's what I want to think about. Why, what, and, and to think about that we have to go back to thinking about what war is as an alternative reality and why it is an attractive vision of social, social reality to those in an experience of social discord. And in the same way, we have to think the, the way that religion plays a role in healing social anomalies and personal tensions of lost existential existence and how these two constructs of world, constructs of war, world order are deeply and inextricably related. In the first lecture of this series, I talked about war as providing this alternative view of reality in a time of social discord, beginning with the gnawing sense of social disorder or a sudden shock as the World Trade Center attack provided to the American public. So war then becomes a way of explaining sense, things, of making sense of, sort of something that seems to be just extraordinarily senseless. It's a way of dealing with discord and providing some kind of alternative to it. In an interesting kind of way, it seems to me, religion, religion does much of the same thing. In an interesting kind of way, it seems to me that religion also deals with a way of explaining on a deeper level of reality things that are not easily explainable, of dealing with the kind of chaos and uncertainty that lies at the margin of all of our lives and trying to knit it into some meaningful expression of human existence and in doing so reaching out to a different level of reality in order to make those discordant aspects of life 
make sense. Religion then provides an unseen source of power and meaning that sometimes is imagined in a kind of vivid and anthropomorphic form that we know as God. What is comforting about God and the religious way of thinking for those who accept this perspective on the world is that they understand God to be ultimately on their side. That is to say that religion provides an alternative vision of the source of power and meaning in the world that will ultimately be beneficial, especially for those who imagine themselves to be in communication in some way with that source of power on a personal or ritual level. Even for those who do not feel that they've been touched by God, religion can be comforting simply because it exists, simply because there is an, even an indefinable and in inchoate way some sense that there is a different level of reality than our own, an alternative vision of order that takes the messy uncertainties of life, the dangers and the nagging sense of chaos, and put it into place to make some sense out of it. It does this especially with the questions about meaning, about the uncertainty of existence, and perhaps most fundamentally in thinking about death. Let's take an example of the way in which religion works one that is maybe familiar to many of you, and that's the Christian rite of the Eucharist, a rite that many Protestant Christians call communion. In the Roman Catholic and Anglican traditions, the Eucharist is enacted in every service of worship. In fact, service of worship is unthinkable without it. Even Protestants respect it on occasion, Growing up in the Methodist Church, we would have what we call communion at least once a month, and it was a very special event. The Eucharist, like every ritual, is something of a drama. And in the case of the Eucharist, it is a drama that sets its kind of dramatic tension between two planes of existence. It begins with prayers and praise meant to enlarge the worshiper's sense of the magnificence of God and the finitude of humanity. It offers prayers of praise, but also of penitence for the offenses that humans have in their limitation. And by doing so, magnify these two polar oppositions of reality, thereby pre preparing the space for the intermediary role that the act of communion itself will play. That is, to prepare a space of receptivity for the reconciliation which the ritual itself will accomplish. The high point then of this drama is the distribution of the elements, which in the Eucharist are the wine and the bread. This is an act that often is almost literally beyond words. It's done in silence, perhaps with soft music, but it's an act. And it's an act specifically of ingestion, of eating, in which each worshiper takes a tiny bit of bread and a tiny bit of wine. The bread and the wine are, of course, more than food. They are, as the priest might say in 
presenting these elements to the worshipers, the very body and blood of Christ. And the concept of transubstantiation in the Catholic Church, this is taken in almost an even literal sense. This is the reconciliation that it prepares the priest at the end to pronounce that the worshipers may go in peace and the peace of the Lord be with them. For the Eucharist is ended and the worshipers presumably transformed in the process. Now, the Eucharistic table is a kind of dinner table. It evokes the table around which Jesus sat at the Seder, the Jewish Seder meal of Passover, shortly before his own death. But that evokes then that other meaning of that table, which is, in fact, an altar. An altar being nothing more or less than a chopping block for a sacrificial death. And in the case of Christianity, of course, this sacrificial death, which is presented in the form of the bread and the wine, the body and the blood of Jesus, the sacrificial death was Jesus' death on the cross. What gives this death meaning ultimately is the resurrection, where death is defeated by an internally present Christ, but this death would have no significance, this resurrection would have no significance if the death were not real, if it not were portrayed in all of its gory and vivid detail as, in fact, a sacrifice, a killing, a loss of blood, a severing of body in an act that is ultimately an act of sacrifice. The central act of sacrifice in Christianity unites it with virtually every other religious tradition on the planet. I cannot think of a single religious tradition that doesn't have in some way, in some form, an act of killing, whether it's this goat that's being killed in a Hindu sacrifice or by Muslims on the, on the uh, Eid of uh, the Eid al-Bakra, the Eid of the goat, uh, literally, uh, whether it's uh, uh, traditions either symbolically or in real ways through the actual killing of a body. Even the Aztecs uh, were... Um, have evidence of human sacrifice as a part of their service. Extraordinary notion, sacrifice, that is so close to almost every tradition on the planet. Lineage of scholars from Emile Durkheim to Sigmund Freud to the contemporary thinkers like Maurice Bloch and Rene Girard have speculated on this century centrality of sacrifice and what it has to do with religion, why it is so significant for the religious, uh, the activity of religion itself. Freud talked about sacrifice as a symbolic displacement for real acts of violence. Those in the Durkheimian tradition talked about it as something that overcomes the sacred and mundane levels of human existence. But in all of these cases, the scholarly points of view, as different as they may be from one another, agree on some fundamental things. That sacrifice is close to the heart of religion, both because of ubiquitousness and because of its antiquity, and that in some ways it is fundamental to the religious imagination 
and because, if for no other reason, it is about death. Hence, there is near unanimity to the notion that central to every religion are ritual expressions of killing and dying and ways of thinking about death. What strikes me as interesting about these symbolic ranks of sacrifice is that they are always found, they're always found within a larger context of, of religious behavior. That is to say, they are not just acts of killing by themselves. They illumine some larger process, moment, or meaning within the tradition in which they uh, appear. It gives meaning to the significance of the rite. In the case of the sacrificial elements of the Eucharist, they take place in a, within a ritual designed, as I just mentioned, to magnify the differences between the sacred and mundane levels of existence, to highlight the tension between them, to give open space for the reconciliation which rituals of religion are meant to accomplish. But it means that this ritual of sacrifice appears within a larger image of a context of struggle and despair, the, in which the inadequacies of the human condition, the weaknesses and confusion of simply being mortal are overcome in the recognition of a divine intervention that tips the balance in favor of humanity and rescues the fallen. And sacrifice then becomes a metaphor for salvation. And salvation, the resolution of an eternal conflict, the apotheosis of a sort of grand and timeless war. It means within every religion there is a sacrificial moment within the reconciliation of the struggle in the moment of a great conflict which is always in some way imagined to be a conflict of war. So religion always has, it seems to me, close to its heart, images not only of sacrifice, but also of war. And it seems to me that it does in its own symbolic way what war does. That is to say, going back to the Eucharist, it takes an image of dislocation and incompleteness. And then it provides in that rouse sense of one's mortality, one's sense of the fragility of the human condition, and one's awareness of the capricious end that is existence in the in un, unbelievably and under, un, not understandable act of death. It provides some ultimate state of understanding some deeper sense of reality that gives root to that experience and transforms it into something positive, meaningful, and enduring beyond time and dimensions of time and space itself. In order to do this, it has to uh, illumine and heighten that fragility in the form of its violence, which is why virtually every religious tradition portrays even its own God in the most bloody of forms. This is an image from Mel Gibson's savagely bloody, gory movie on the Passion of the Christ, which curiously ignores the triumphant uh, resurrection to the emphasis on the suffering itself, this kind of uh, victimization of God. 
which every religious tradition experiences. And one sees a different form of this in many of the cathedrals in, in Central and Latin America where you will see something that looks to me like Jesus in a box. There'll be a kind of uh, like a coffin on the side of the church. When you peer inside, you'll see an, an image or a kind of, you know, horizontal statue of Jesus. This is portrayed with the most vivid, bloody signs of his torment on the cross with with the wounds from the forehead, from the crown of thorns still visible, the blood pouring from his hands and feet. One experiences in that image the great suffering of Jesus and identifies, I suppose the worshiper identifies uh, his or her own suffering, his own fragility, his own humanness, his own mortality with that mortal God. In order, one has to imagine the inconsolable experience of violence and death in order to imagine its triumphal conquest through the religious template, which then takes this anomaly in human experience and makes it right. It seems to me in a very interesting way that the work of religion and the work of war in the human imagination are curiously similar. At the heart of the idea of both war and religion, then, is the notion of a kind of alternative reality. Both war and religion present a kind of portrayal of order and a kind of reconciliation of existential tensions and moral contests that locate this, these uh, sufferings and any apparent anomalies in life within a grander context. They make sense out of things as meaningless as bombing attacks or the persistence of sin. And the main difference being that war locates this alternative reality in a different kind of vision of social order. And religion provides an alternative reality of a more existential and ultimately transcendent nature. And yet you can see how easily these two patterns of alternative understandings of social reality, these two alternative um, visions of human consciousness are so easily complementary to one another. It's important, as I said, for religion to portray the anomaly of mortality in the human condition in a vivid way. And this is one of the reasons why war is so useful for the religious imagination. It shows how religion works. It's a kind of metaphor for religion's business. It fashions war as religion, fastens on an irreconcilable oddity of life and makes sense of it in some different template of consciousness, in some grand narrative of conflict. Religion's way of seeing the war is where disorder is ultimately reconciled, transformed, really, into order, which is why the images of war help the believer understand more clearly how religion goes about its business. Religion provides that alternative reality that reconciles life's deep anomalies on a transcendent plane. Now let me give you an example of how religion and war can be so 
inextricably related. And to do so, I want to return to that text with which I began and regard it as something of a sacred text, and that is the Left Behind novels that are so wildly popular in today's American cultural scene. Now, you recall that the story of the Left Behind novels are set in initially in a world that most American readers would recognize as both familiar and comforting. It's ordinary life, suburban communities, nice families. People are going about their ordinary business in extraordinarily ordinary ways. And yet, in the midst of these niceties of ordinary life, they become rumblings of things that are profoundly out of sync. So increasingly, the spiritual sterility of what passes as normal society is portrayed with a hard edge. Weird things happen. Horrible things begin to come to pass. A heartless dictatorial ideology is gradually imposing itself on the social order. And sensitive people, faithful Christian believers, find themselves marginalized, humiliated, and persecuted in a sea of secularism. Close to the experience of many of its readers, this gradually and increasingly more perverse view of reality prevents it, presents itself. So in this sense of discomfort, this sense of increasing feeling of being out of sync with some deeper reality, there is, at least in the Christian imagination, in the imagination of those readers who are fans of the novel series and who are familiar with the text of the Revelation, an extraordinary moment, and that is the rapture, some moment when even in an ordinary metropolis, suddenly cars stop and traffic comes to a halt and those people, Christians who were believers, are ready at that moment. God knows when it will come. And it could come at any moment. The sudden vision, the world stops Jesus appears, the rapture has begun, and souls leap to heaven. In this particular image, you'll see that they have already left their earthly clothes. They see nothing but just a pile of clothes left behind, and in spiritual garb now are racing towards heaven. In this image, a more comic book version of it, they don't want to deal with the doffing of clothes, but rather still fully clothe these um, full-bodied young men and women are zooming into heaven ready to be uh, united and one with the Lord. The rapture in the Left Behind novels accomplishes that union for most Christians, but as I mentioned at the outset of this talk, there were a few who were in fact left behind. This band of initially half-hearted Christians who were secularists who were not swept up in a rapture because of the uh, inconsistency of their religious ways become the true Christians and then persist through what then are a series of horrible, horrible things that occur to the earth, some terrible moments of the social reality, a series of events called the tribulations in the Book of Revelations, cataclysmic acts, earthquake, fire, demonic beings, the rise of the Antichrist, the satanic feet, this 
satanic uh, figure that emerges and who is portrayed in the Left Behind novels as the, as the Secretary General of the United Nations, who then has evil desires on the world and a hell-bent to overcome and destroy any kind of uh, cultural, religious uh, sentiment of particularity in this kind of homogenous, uh, globalized, uh, new, uh, new uh, world order uh, that he is promulgating on the earth. So the great conflict in the Left Behind novels is one in an interesting way that is like the conflict that is inherent in the worldview of every religious tradition. That is, at the outset, a normal reality that it is in some way, that is in some way deeply insufficient. And a feeling of those who are sensitive to the deeper aspects of reality that somehow things are not the way they should be. And they become attracted to a different way of thinking about the world a way in which this material world is in conflict with more true and transcendent order that is provided to the religious view of reality. And in the case of the Left Behind novels, this reality is not just hinted at the way that it's done in normal religious language through Sunday sermons and scriptural texts, but it crashes into our mundane world into a vengeance in the dramatic moment of the rapture. But the tension between these two realities, the mundane world and the religious world, is what the novel is about. And like all views of war, which indeed it is, this conflict comes with more weight. The mundane reality is not sufficient in its own. It's downright evil on its own terms. So this battle between ultimate good and evil is presented as a challenge to us who are forced to make a choice. We either side with one side or the other. We either side with the good or with the evil forces. Like Prince Arjuna hesitating at the fringes of the battle in the Hindu epic, the Mahabharata, the believer has to decide how they will choose to live within the battle, on which side they will be on and on what way they will wage the fight. So even though they are not quite the same, they point to different levels of transcendent tra levels of order, either a different social order or a different or a transcendent one. Even though they're not quite the same, religion and war in some way play a similar role in the human imagination, and so similar that they easily reinforce one another. They both provide visions of an alternative perception of reality, ways of seeing the world that absorb anomalies that explain why chaos and disorder exists, and they help to contain and control these untidy and dangerous aspects of life. As I said, war's vision is a this-worldly version of reality, and religion holds a transcendent vision, but they function so similarly that war frequently utilizes religion, religion incorporates images of war, and sometimes they are almost fused seamlessly into an image that I've called in other writings, cosmic war. Now what I mean by cosmic war is not just quite 
holy war, in part because I don't mean that it's specifically Muslim or a part of any single tradition, but every religion has, at certain moments of its existence, managed to fuse these notions of war and the notion of religion so seamlessly that they're all one great battle. And the believer then is swept up within it in such a way that to be truly religious, to be truly to be true to one's religious self, one has to engage in a battle. One has to fight in the way in which Abu Lima, this uh, jihadi uh, activist involved in the 1993 bombing the World Trade Center, explained to me that he had to make a choice. He had his, his life gained meaning when he accepted the idea of jihad. So whether it's in the Christian image of Armageddon or the jihadi version of war, or curiously in Japan of all places, in a context of Buddhism where one might least expect it, the image of Armageddon and specifically the term Armageddon taken from the Revelation, book of Revelation in the New Testament, fused with ideas that came out of Hinduism and from Tantric Buddhism were woven into an extraordinary web by a spiritual leader, Master Shoko Asahara, the leader of the Aum Shinrikyo movement, such a way to imagine a great war coming about that he wanted to portray in some vivid way to let his believers know that the, that the Third World War that he had prophesied was really coming into being. They had, had prepared ways of protecting their followers when this war happened. They were experimenting with nerve gas and other forms, biological forms of destruction and trying to, in order to try to, to develop ways of protecting themselves against it. But it was nerve gas that in fact he unleashed in the Tokyo subways in one horrifying moment when several trains were converging in the Kasumi Kaseki station in downtown Tokyo, thereby, uh, thereby not only killing a number of, of innocent members of those travelers on the subways, but also, and injuring thousands more, but also enacting the first and only use of weapons of mass destruction by religious terrorists. But he was doing so in order to bring about his vision of, his vision of global war. The jihadi activists, as I said before, have tried to do much the same. They have provided an image of conflict, of image of salvation that are in some uh, extraordinary way seamlessly fused together into an idea of, 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 of temporal conquest that also meant uh, for its believers a moment of spiritual redemption in which conflicts over territory and political control were lifted into the high proscenium of sacred drama and those who participated in this dramatic moment would find the release and the relief not only of social victory, but of personal redemption and salvation. Now, since I've defined war as the moral absolutism of social conflict, and I've talked about religion as providing some of the same elements, you may wonder whether all wars are to some extent cosmic wars. And, and, and to an extent that's true in that there is this 
possibility for the absolutism of any engagement that involves the justification of the killing of other pe people into a moment into a pattern of uh, global conflict of cosmic war it means that there is something of a sliding scale between worldly war and cosmic war between military activities that are rational calculations for the sake of civil order and those that are thought to be manifestations of an ultimate sacred struggle and it's I find it curiously interesting that often the defenders of what appears to some of their detractors to be uh, irrational acts of absolutistic warfare are justified in terms of the ra rational calculation for uh, just uh, uh, reconciliation of, of, a, of, a, of a wounded public of a fractured social order, that these two elements are somehow not easily distinguished in the minds either of those who defend war or those who support it. The cosmic war images lurk behind virtually any form of military maneuver and their public support, as well as the worldly wish issues for which the war is waged. Now, if what I've said is right, if there is a kind of natural, almost visceral response of the religious imagination to images of warfare and of war to religion, if these two patterns of reconciliation on a transcendent and extraordinary plane, the anomalies and discordant elements of life, these two patterns are so similar, can you really imagine a world that has religion without war or that has conflict without either of those images. I think this is, for the last few minutes of our time together, I think this is the, the issue that I would like us to puzzle over. If it's really not possible to erase the extraordinarily powerful significance of these images of warfare in the human imagination. If one looks at the ubiquitousness with which warfare is in literature and stories and religion and ritual and in human activity, can you ever really imagine a world, can you imagine humans caring about, carrying about their task of maintaining civil order without imagining the opposite and having that opposite opposition always at the edges of the known world always available in order to try to make sense of, contain, control the rough edges of ordinary existence in the way that war and religion does. Is it possible then, in some way, if we can't have a world rid of war, to have a world in which war is either contained or redirected? I think this is the topic that has consumed some of the, think the thinking of some of the more profound ethical thinkers of history. When the Emperor Constantine embraced Christianity and made it into a state religion, he took what had been largely pacifist cult 
members who, many of whom refused to join the Roman Empire uh, army because they thought it would be a matter of worshiping a different god, and made it into a state religion such that religion, Christianity, this pacifist tradition, would be in the employment of the power, the potency, uh, the expansion of the empire itself. It created an enormous difficulty for the young church until a very sensitive 4th century Bishop Augustine hit upon a solution. Turning to an idea developed by Cicero in the Roman tradition of Roman jurisprudence, he fashioned a notion of just war, which argued that warfare was never really justified in a, in, a, in a perfect world, but we don't live in a perfect world. And in the world in which we live, a contained and controlled form of military response, a kind of, if you will, strategic use of employment of war could in some ways make sense. And the just war tradition developed by Augustine and then by Aquinas which has parallels in virtually every religious tradition, including Islam, put forth notions of a balance, of defense, of the limitations both for the employment of warfare and the conduct of it, and specifically condemns the lust for power as an inappropriate reason for warfare. In every tradition, then, the just war criteria is one that is employed to try to at least limit what warfare means in the human imagination in the way that it's applied to a real social struggle. The more recent Protestant theologian Reinhold Niebuhr takes the same argument with regard to the Christian position towards Hitler and towards the, uh, the dictatorships of communism in the 20th century in order to explain why in a formidable essay, the Christian church is not pacifist, why sometimes it must justify in a real world uh, what it would be unjustifiable in a more perfect one. It is a way of taking these absolutistic images and applying them in a very limited and defined setting. In a quite different way, Sigmund Freud, as many other thinkers have in imagining the power of religious violence in the human imagination attempted to explain the power of symbolic expressions of violence, of sacrifice, of death in ways that ultimately are meant to conquer it, to overcome it, to redirect the passions of violence in a symbolic way. This is a point picked up by a contemporary thinker, René Girard, in imagining that the symbolic violence of religion is extraordinarily important in containing the passions of real violence, of expressing that urge, that imaginary transcendent plane of reality in a way that's safely contained within religious images without actual violence occurring. In a separate, different way, Mohandas Gandhi has offered yet another way of thinking about images of violence in war and finding a way of domesticating them and thereby limiting the loss of life that otherwise might occur. Gandhi was fascinated with war, with conflict in particular. But he thought that war, the, the, the war of most social conflict was on a kind of 
uh, ethical plane. It was a, a war of principles, a conflict, a battle between different ways of perceiving what is right. And he wanted to detach it from a personal attachment to a position to look at the position itself, to say that in every fight there is a struggle between different ways of perceiving truth, and that is the conflict that needs to uh, be uh, em embraced uh, and ultimately to be uh, surmounted. So the different ways in which one can think then of war being a metaphor for facing conflict, of dealing with differences, of resolving them in ways that do not involve bloodshed, in ways that do not involve the loss of life. Are these ultimately satisfying? Were those kids at the keyboard or the computer games who were so glory in the images of Counter-Strike ever be satisfied with a notion of warfare uh, that has the imaginative power of literary uh, and religious symbols and yet not the total destruction of actual engagement? I, I, I don't know. But it seems to me that as a human society, we have to imagine ways in which these images, the potency of this power of these uh, forms of absolute conflict and absolutistic resolution of difference can be resolved within ordinary experience in the way that promotes civil virtues and doesn't wage against them. I think humans will always imagine war. War along with religion is one of the most creative acts of human consciousness. I mean, to think in such extraordinary reaches of cosmic confrontation and to propose such dramatic alternatives to reality that war and religion provide, these are testimonies to the extraordinary possibilities of the human imagination. But it seems to me it's also within the creative power of our species to think reasonably about differences and profoundly respect the sanctity of life. It's this latter impulse that gives me some hope that even in the dramatic tension of war, there may be this flower at the base of the picture of Wernicke that Picasso has posed. And in some way, we may be war's captain and our images of religion, humanity's saving grace. Thank you very much for your persistence in this series of lectures. Uh, we have time for uh, a few questions. There should be a student with a mic uh, coming up there. There she is. Uh, so. Go ahead. I think you'll take questions. Sure, please. Mm -mm. Hello, hello, hello. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. my, my question is, um, well, let, one comment and then a quick question. My comment is I've tried to do in a similar style of what you've done with religion with drama mm -hmm. and how drama is constructed, and there's a lot of similarities. You may want to explore that. I don't know if, if you have. I have not read the book, but very similar to the popular appeal of setting up very binary relationships between protagonists and antagonists and drama, very similar mm -hmm. to it. But if you follow your trajectories in terms of your thought of religion and God, could you not collapse that into the whole idea of human mental constructs 
in a larger framework, maybe a larger umbrella? Because I wonder, is it not, could, could one not make the case that the Enlightenment could fall into the same trappings that religion did in the name of getting away from religion? And some now, a lot of postmodernist thinkers are already going to the point of saying, well, the Enlightenment could be put in the very same categories. You had your bad guy, your Frankensteins, and ultimately the 20th century were the fruit of their own extremity. So is it not just a question of how do you, I guess in the Eastern sense, you know, the extremities of mental constructs going too far away from maybe a more base mm -hmm. or sensual reality. I don't know if that's mm -hmm. a real question, but you know, just mm -hmm. something like that to respond to. No, I agree with you, and it's a perceptive comment, but it seems to me that the, what is distinctive in war and religion, uh, in this imaginative human con construct, the inventiveness of the human consciousness that you talk about, is the absolutism of conflict, of thinking in terms of, of an a, a extraordinary uh, uh, a conflict and planes of reality through which then anomalies in human existence are are made sense of and, trans and transformed. Reason does that in a different way, taking the Enlightenment tradition. That there, there is, uh, and is why, at least in some quarters, religion and science are, uh, are imagined to be in opposition. Because it's imagined that science in its own way deals with anomalies, certainly in the natural order, and tries to put them within the framework of some grand vision of order, of natural law. Now, of course, science doesn't try to do that existentially or in terms of social conflict, so it doesn't really replace war or religion. But you can understand why there are religious persons who see uh, the project of the Enlightenment as being in opposition ultimately to what religion offers. Uh, it seems that some religions the patterns you described, um, especially, uh, for example, two Buddhist traditions, Zen and Jainism. Could you comment on that? I'm sorry, didn't it, the acoustics appear some are, are not very good. So uh, Jainism and Buddhism are two religious traditions that don't seem to fit the pattern you described. Jainism and Both Buddhism reject violence. Um, none of them have been involved in any um, conflict armed conflict. Um, how could you explain that? Well, let's, uh, you're talking about Jainism and Buddhism. It's an interesting point uh, that Buddhism, for example, when it is, appears in one stratum within a, a larger religious culture, let's say in Japan, Japan or, or, or China, is largely uh, uh, concerned with the transformation of, uh, of, of life beyond death. I mean, uh, typically within a Chinese or, or let's say a Japanese family, you may mar marry according to one tradition, may be married by a Shinto priest in Japan, but then you'll be buried by a Buddhist priest because you're concerned about the kind of technology that Buddhism offers in, in dealing with death. It doesn't deal uh, with social tensions or with the, uh, uh, the support of, of social order in a broad sense. Mahayana Buddhist traditions don't. But Theravada traditions do in Burma and Sri Lanka, for example. And that's where you find violent Buddhists. In Sri Lanka, for example, one of the first, uh, one of the first revolutionaries in uh, the fight, the struggle and in independence against the British was, such as it was in Sri Lanka, was waged by a Buddhist monk. So if you go to Kandy, there's a, near the 
Dalago Meligwala, which is the main temple, uh, the Temple of the Tooth, for you will see uh, statues of, uh, of this, of this uh, Buddhist bhikkhu, this monk. Uh, it was a monk who assassinated one of Sri Lanka's prime ministers. Uh, it is monks who have been behind some of the revolutionary acts of the JVP movement against the uh, Buddhist, uh, uh, secular Buddhist government, uh, seeing the secular government as pandering to the Tamil separatists in the north. So Buddhism in Sri Lanka plays a very active social political role and a very militant and violent one. When I talk with one of these monks about how Buddhism of all religious traditions could justify violence in this way, especially kind of violence of warfare and social revolution, he said, well, we, believe, we, we Buddhists believe in karma, that you, you reap what you, you sow, and sometimes people get karma uh, sooner in life than they, uh, than they expected. And of course, he didn't uh, explain that, he, that that his own supporters would uh, impose this karmic end onto onto the people he thought deserved it. But that was his uh, that was his uh, kind of uh, stretch of Buddhist uh, logic uh, explanation of how Buddhism could be involved in such things. So, alas, Buddhism uh, is also a violent religion. Yes. The Jain tradition, by the way, has never uh, been at a point of being a, uh, there, there have been Jain no, leaders. Jain. They're Jain kings, that's true. But in, not in contemporary uh, social life. Yes. If you were asked to look at and to rank um, those things that supported uh, uh, were excuses for or rationalizations for war, uh, where would economics fit into this picture? Economics or politics or layman's drama, whatever you want to call it, survival? Uh, is, is religion a greater cause and a supporter and an advancer of conflict and wars than economics? No, and I don't mean to imply that religion is a cause of war. That is, I don't think, and this is certainly true in the contemporary experience, whether it's the global jihadi war or the, or the, uh, the kind of violent confrontations that exist in many parts of the world that are ex often expressed in, in, in acts of terrorism. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't see any of them as religious in the sense that they are fighting for a particular religious belief or against other religious people. But they're rather cases in which religion becomes the vehicle the way in which these tensions are expressed. It becomes the kind of ideology through which uh, the, the desire for warfare is expressed. Uh, and, the, and the causes, if you're looking for social causes, are, are exactly the ones that you suggest, economic, a sense of economic press, oppression. Uh, says, for example, when Osama bin Laden articulated his fatwa of 1996, what he talked about where uh, he talked about the economic exploitation of oil within the Middle East. He talked about the military presence of the American uh, uh, soldiers in Saudi Arabia. He talked about the political support of Israel, uh, the lack of support of Palestine. He talked about cultural issues of the kind of way in which Western values were pervaded through the media, through television, and through, uh, through the Internet. Uh, none of these were, had to do with religion in any kind of narrow sense. But they were examples of the kind of evil destructiveness of the West that was being imposed on the Muslim society 
for which he had a religious response, and the religious response was jihad, to try to then engage, to try to destroy this evil that was being perpetrated uh, upon the people. So my simple analysis is that religion is not the problem. It's rather the way in which the problem is then described and embraced, and then in doing so it becomes problematic because then religion brings its own absolutistic frame of reference to the struggle that then makes things much more difficult. Thanks. Um, it seems to me that you have left something out. Uh, we live in a time of tremendous cultural transformation. The universe in which we live is not what our fathers imagined it was. Human beings are not what our ancestors imagined human beings were. Uh, there, as these facts really begin to percolate through the populations of the world, there must be enormous number of people who feel that they've totally lost their moorings. And one of the things that, that I do worry about is that they will just be overcome with rage at not knowing or having lost the feeling of what they are and who they are and how they should confront life. Uh, I, th I think it's a very bad omen for the near future. Well, I, I agree with you, and, and I think that, that that is part of at least what the perception of the impact of globalization has meant, that, that we, that, 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 that desperate need for identity and control, to know who you are and, and who's in charge, in an era of globalization seems to be severed because all of us are everywhere and no one seems to be in charge. So we live in perilous times. You know, if you're looking for a simple social question, uh, explanation to the uh, kind of outbreak of, of social violence in many parts of the world, well, that you don't need to look very far because all of us in some ways feel a kind of alienation and anime of being in a homogenized society, of, of losing roots with our tradition. A group of us the other day were at, at a dinner table uh, talking about an odd thing. Where would we be buried if we were to be buried? Or where would our ashes be spread? I mean, my, for my father's generations, there was no question. It was a family graveyard back in the old home place. But most of us don't have an old home place. There isn't a location spot on the planet that is our cultural destiny. So I think, you know, just that simple discussion, I think, uh, evoked uh, this, this sense of uh, kind of frustration that all of us feel about having a location, an identity, and a place and an order in the world that seems determined not to provide any of those things to us. So uh, it's, no, it's easy to understand why images of war, images of religion, provide that location, provide that sense of a purpose, identity, meaning that otherwise we, we don't have. I agree. Well, if you'd mind speaking to the issue of the tension between religion and war, uh, thinking, for example, of someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who for religious reasons felt he could become involved in an attempt to assassinate Hitler to stop a, what he felt was a tragic and inhumane war and devastation of the Jewish people in uh, Germany during the Second World War era. The good war, quote, unquote. Yes, and, and Niebuhr, I, Bonhoeffer, I think, like Niebuhr, saw his act as a kind of strategic one. 
And, and of course, Bonhoeffer wrestled with it. He, you know, had came, he was in Union Seminary in New York at the time that he decided that he really had to go back to Germany and take part in something that, that this, couldn't allow this evil to persist. But it was an interesting example of the way in which an act of killing was justified, it seems to me, at least in Bonhoeffer's case, not within the larger framework of war, of great cosmic war. It wasn't as if he was at war with the Germans. He was a German. Uh, you know, it, it was a matter of dealing with a specific problem, as awful as it might be, in a very specific way. You know, in a curious way, even the great pacifist Mohandas Gandhi identified enemies with situations where you might have to kill. He gave a couple examples. One of the sniper on the rooftop who's shooting people down below, and if the only way to stop him is to shoot him. That's what you have to do. Gandhi also gave the example of a rapist in the act. If you came across somebody, he said, you have to stop that person. If you see violence in the process of in the process of, of, of happening, you have to stop it by whatever means necessary. And that's simply the logical calculation of using military force. And, and this example of the difference between the imaginary construct of war and then the use of military force that I was trying to talk about in my first lecture, that, there, that using military force or using force is not the same thing as imagining the world in a conflict in absolutistic terms. I don't think Bonhoeffer believed that. I didn't, don't think Niebuhr believed it. I don't think Gandhi believed it. But they all saw moments in which you're absolutely right. You might have to use, for sake of justice or sake of, of nonviolence, you might have to use strategic acts of violence. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um. Although like most religions have violence is almost like omnipresent to them, most religions have nonviolence as a core value, such as like Hinduism, which is like nonviolence as one of its core values, in spite of which like right now in India, like Hinduism is gaining a very militant color and violence is like thoroughly encouraged by it. So like how do you explain that? How do you explain the transition of a nonviolent religion a very violent one. Well, with all due respect, every religious tradition has nonviolence as its core. Every religious tradition promises peace. Every religious tradition uh, uh, would, uh, does not allow killing uh, for uh, reasons that are foolish or for are easy or that, uh, that deliberately uh, and callously take the life of another person. Uh, and at the same time, every religious tradition has images of war. As I was saying, the Hindu tradition is full of it, whether it's the Mahabharata, the Ramayana, or the, the, the great uh, uh, epics and legends, or whether in the Sikh tradition, the great battles of the gurus. Every religious tradition is full of war. And it was a moment in 1909 when Gandhi was a, uh, a lawyer in South Africa. He came to London in order to try to plead the case of the uh, Indians in South Africa to the members of the British Parliament. But when he was there, immediately he was thrust into a discussion about the nationalist movement in India and how India was to free itself from the British. There were rationalists, there were you know, well-trained, British-trained uh, 
politicians in, in the nationalist movement who said we have to reason with the British, we have to develop an effective strategy to show them that an Indian economy is viable. But it was the religious nationalists at the, at the time, the Hindu nationalists who said that will never work. It was people like Safarkar who advocated the use of violence. The strategic acts of terrorism, for example, were the only way in which the British would realize the foolishness of their ways, and he began to undertake it, or at least he supported those who undertook it. A man, Punjabi, by the name of Dingra, who two weeks before Gandhi arrived, attacked the, one of the uh, commissioners of uh, the British commissioners of the, in the India office uh, at, at a formal reception. He pulled out a gun and shot him in the face. The man was killed, lying on the ground. And it was in this context that there was a huge debate within the Indian community about whether to adopt this religious perspective of Savarkar or the rationalist one. Gandhi tried to argue that there was a religious way of thinking about the conflict that didn't involve bloodshed. So on the boat on the way back to South Africa, he began writing. And what he wrote was something that became arguably his only book, Raj, or Indian Home Rule, where in a sense he agreed with the goals of the activists. He agreed that it should be a moral struggle and not just a rational one. But to be a moral struggle, even in Hindu terms, it didn't have to be violent. It could be a moral engagement with truth, and it was necessary in order to keep true to one's beliefs and one's ethical vision if one was going to establish uh, a society that was based not on violence, but on nonviolence and ethical, moral, uh, ethical and moral principles. Well, thank you very much. You've been a patient audience. I appreciated the questions and the discussion.